suggest it, so that's my thing, because I, when I wrote the... For possible further restrictions this winter, I'm asking the question, shouldn't we just learn to live with this virus? The boss of a civil service says it's absolutely fine if lots of people simply want to work from home forever. Really? We'll discuss that. And joining me on Talking Pints, Stuart Jackson, former MP and an eyewitness to Theresa May's great Brexit betrayal. Well, it's been a week of absolute chaos over vaccine passports, with some ministers saying we will not be having vaccine passports. Other ministers saying, of course, we're going to have to have vaccine passports. And the government, frankly, on this has been all over the place. Well, today, Boris Johnson took a press conference, a big press conference, a long press conference, and worth bearing in mind, I think, that his mother died last night, but he kept going, he carried on, and it was interesting. Plan A, we know about. Plan A is booster jabs for the over 50s and the vulnerable, letters going out next week. Plan A is vaccinations for 12 to 15 year olds, where in extremis, 12 year olds could overrule the wishes of their parents. Plan A is continued use of face masks in very, very enclosed spaces. But today wasn't about that, because all of that had been flagged. We knew all of those things they'd been debated. Today was about Johnson outlining what is plan B if things go wrong this autumn, this winter. And see if you agree with me that compared to some of the days when the Prime Minister is a bit shambolic in his delivery, I think what he said, whether you agree with the content or not, I think what he said, he was actually very together heard the exact state of things at the moment and we're confident we can proceed with, with, with Plan A. But I think I, what I would stress about Plan B uh, is that it contains a number of different shots in the, in the locker and you wouldn't necessarily play them uh, all at once, far from it. You'd, uh, you'd want to do things uh, in a graduated way. And I just emphasise what I think Patrick has said many times, that we're now in a situation when because so many of the population have some degree of immunity, smaller changes uh, in, uh, in the guidance, smaller changes in the way we're asking people to behave can have a bigger impact. And, and uh, a smaller tilt on the tiller, if you want, can uh, affect a bigger change in the, in the direction of the, of the pandemic. Now, personally, I can't bear the thought of any further restrictions. This has now been going on for 18 months. And if we start to get more restrictions, who's to say it won't go on for two, three, four, five years? I think we've simply got to learn to live with this virus. But I do understand that as a government, they have to prepare for all eventualities. For me, I can't... I, I, I simply won't be locked down again under any circumstances. Let's hope it doesn't come to that. But I hope you agree with me that he was actually very together and really quite logical in the arguments he was making, whether you like them or not. Well, joining me is GB News political editor Darren McCaffrey. Darren, it was a very together performance, wasn't it? Yeah, essentially what the government are trying to do is try and map out within boundaries what may well happen this winter. The concern from the scientists, Nigel, frankly, is we're going into the autumn and the winter mm. with higher caseloads, hospitalisations and deaths than we had this time last year. Now, we've got the vaccines. They clearly work. There's no doubt about that. 
uh, they're doing their job, but they're not 100%. Well, they work in terms of serious illness Indeed. and hospitalisation. And they dampen transmission down somewhat, but... Do they? Yeah, I mean, well, that's the argument the scientists yeah. would make. Uh, and I'm not a scientist, but that's what they would say. But I think in the end, there is a, a level of concern about, you know, even... A small increase in hospitalisations or, you know, a kind of ratcheting up could put pressure on the National Health Service, coupled with we know there was no flu last winter, that's not likely to be the case this winter, mm. and concerns around the vaccine with that. And that is why they've come up with these contingency plans. I think where there is potentially a little bit of a shifting of the goalposts, do you have to remember the government always said when it was reopening up, it was all about the pressure on the National Health Service. And now they're talking about trying to prevent sustainable pressure on the NHS. Not that it's going to collapse, uh, but that sustainable pressure may be enough to impose restrictions. And, and I think that that kind of slightly subtle change is quite significant, as it gives a lot more brevity to potentially reimposing some of the restrictions about mask wearing, working yeah. from home, the kind of lighter touch restrictions that Boris Johnson has touched upon. In the end, though, are we going to face another lockdown? The scientists, the government seems to think it is still very, very unlikely, particularly with the booster programme. Can they rule it out? They cannot. No. No, I guess that's right. And um, what have Labour had to say about this and, 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 and the Health Secretary, Sajid Javid? Well, so he, Sajid Javid, was in the Commons today uh, setting out this, you know, this plan, the, the plan B that you talked about. I, I think where Conservative backbenchers got quite annoyed about was this idea about vaccine passports mm. that, again, the Prime Minister touched upon. I mean, this is the Health Secretary two days ago, three days ago. Said it wasn't going to happen. On the TV saying it had been ruled out. And it's clearly not. In fact, far from being ruled out, it is very much on the table and that it could come into effect with only a week's notice in England. Mm. Uh, so, and, that, and that's the things like nightclubs and, indeed, for large-scale events. As for the Labour opposition, I mean, there's a feeling, I think, that, you know, Labour asking questions of the government. Frankly, the government is saying, these things are unpredictable, we haven't got all the answers. Uh, the Labour Party, though, on the whole, wholly supportive or largely supportive of, of kind of the government if not wanting them to be a little more cautious than they are. As they've been, really, since the start of the pandemic. Well, this is why the Conservatives have never, or the government, I should say, have never really had to be concerned about getting legislation through Parliament, because, in the end, even though there is a rump of around 50 Conservative MPs who've not necessarily been on board with lots of these yeah. measures, they know, in the end, the Labour Party largely has been. No, that's right. And, Darren, tonight... In the House of Commons, debate. I just saw John Redwood, uh, one of the rebels from the other evening, was up. So they're voting tonight on... Um, we call it the social care uh, legislation, but it's probably more about the NHS in reality. Yeah. Um, uh, any sign of a significant... There were 37 <coughs> abstentions in the Conservative Party and five that voted against in the in-principle vote last week. Any signs of a rebellion, or does so Boris just sail through? So, on the second reading, in the last hour or so, we've had six Conservative uh, objections. Yeah. 41 didn't register to vote. Doesn't mean necessarily 41 abstained, but you suspect a large number of them did. So, not much of shifting in sands. Obviously, they are ramming through this legislation, essentially, through uh, the Commons. I think it's now in committee stage. Uh, this, of course, as you say, is a national insurance hike. Yeah. Uh, a pretty large one for employees and employers to pay for uh, somewhat social security or social care, but largely to fund the National Health Service yeah. for the next three years, £36 billion pounds in total. Uh, Conservative backbenchers have had their arms twisted all day, being told that their <laughs> careers are on the line, ah, uh, that they won't be the, getting donors' money. This is money. The, the threats from the whips, yeah? Of course, yeah. They're yeah. entirely the whips, trying to get them to fall into line. I think the key thing is, in the end, of course, I mean, this will go through. There is no doubt about that. Yeah. But 
This is a very significant moment. I come back to what I think I said to you last week, and I think the sun captured it quite well. It's a gamble for the government. And I think we've seen the opinion polls shift in the last week. You know, there's an understanding that by next April, people will see a big increase in their tax bill. And by the next election, if there are not significant changes... More tax increases. ..in, in, in health care or social care, there's not the really amount of tax increases. You know, there will be not just Conservatives, but there will be politicians across the board claiming that the government have completely miscalculated this. And that's why it's going to be very, very tricky, I think. I, I think the government have underestimated what a significant move Interesting. this is. Interesting. Darren, thank you. That was Darren McCaffrey, our political editor. And I just want to say... Uh, that on this whole question of vaccine passports, if it does come to the point where they introduce them, well, I don't go to nightclubs much anymore, so I should be OK. But who's to say? I mean, across France, you know, you have to have a vaccine passport even to go and buy a drink, even to go into a restaurant. I hope we don't get to that. I certainly won't be carrying one, I can assure you. Uh, but just think about this. The government has been inconsistent at times, often all over the shop. But however much I object to the threat of any potential new restrictions this autumn and winter, thank goodness we're not living in Australia or France, where it's very, very much more repressive. Now, what would it take to trigger Plan B? What would need to happen to the National Health Service for the cry to go up for more to be done. Well, discussing this with me, health policy analyst and former NHS Trust chairman, Roy Lilly. Roy, good evening and welcome. Good evening, Nigel. One of the things that fascinates me, and you've spent so many years in the National Health Service and talking about the National Health Service, perhaps I've got something wrong here. I thought the NHS was there to protect us. Yet I keep hearing that we have to protect the NHS. And isn't that what Plan B's about? Isn't Plan B about <laughs> hospitalisations reach a certain number, whether it's through COVID, whether it's through flu, and restrictions come back? And, Roy, I ask this in, in the context that I can't think of a winter when the NHS hasn't been in crisis over the course of the last few years. Yeah, it's, it's always chock-a-block. I mean, the, the, the NHS never asked to be protected, Nigel. I mean, that was a... That was a kind of the uh, invention of the of the number 10 press office. And it was a kind of a nice story. And, it, and everybody coalesced around the NHS. We all went out clapping for it. And that was yep. a way of focusing public attention. So it was, it was a rather cute communications move. Look, I mean, the situation, I can just tell you what the situation is. Most of our major hospitals now are running at about 90% capacity. Right now, World Health Organization uh, guidance for capacity is around 83%. That's kind of regarded as safe for handovers and maintenance of kit and what have you. So we're running at 90%. Last weekend, uh, for example, the John Radcliffe Hospital, one of our biggest yeah. hospitals uh, just outside London, it closed. It said, we're full up. We can't, uh, we can't take any more. Patients were diverted. People are waiting now commonly for four to six hours for an ambulance. So, I mean, the, yeah, I mean, the NHS is chock-a-block. It's chock-a-block with, with what? Two things. One, yes, COVID. I mean, there are eight and a half thousand people in hospital with COVID now. Yep. This time last year, it was 600. So, and that's, you know, going in that direction. It's going up. Uh, and we've got, uh, uh, you know, all the normal stuff. 
that people are coming in with plus people who are much sicker than they need to be because of the waiting list problem. And of course, there's the waiting list problem where the NHS, well. I mean, it's done, <laughs> it's done well on COVID, it's done well on cancer, but it's still trying to catch up with waiting. So it's chock-a-block night. OK, now I get that. And of course, we're living in a country with a very rapidly rising population. And I don't think we've built enough hospitals over the course of the last 20 years to meet anything like the need. So there is a major problem there. But Roy... No, the, 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 issue, the issue there, if I could... Sorry to... Yeah, no, go on. The, the, the issue there is, is our beds per 100,000 population. Hmm. Uh, our number of beds, if you look at OECD countries, and you, know, you can Google this and look it up, yeah. our number of beds per head of population is right at the bottom. We had 10 years of pretty much flatline funding. The beds shrunk. The workforce shrunk. So we came along COVID, came off a very low base. That's the reason for that. Yeah, and Roy, we're at 5.6 million, I believe, now in terms of the waiting list. Dire warnings that it could go to 13 million. Uh, but from the sounds of it, if we're 90% occupied in the hospitals now, if the John Radcliffe, who, by the way, treated me after my aeroplane accident and were quite magnificent, I must say. If the job I Radcliffe... hoped you'd remember that, Nigel. I hoped you'd remember. I, I certainly do, and they were wonderful. And, uh, yeah, they really were one, absolutely amazing. I mean, the one thing I've never doubted, Roy, if you're in a serious accident, if you're really in trouble, the NHS is fantastic. I, I, I absolutely... I've been involved in a, a serious road traffic accident too, and on both occasions they've been amazing. But the problem we've got here is diagnostics and then actioning, you know, a variety of medical procedures, operations. If we're 90% capacity now, and if the numbers of infections are going to increase throughout the autumn, and they probably will, we don't know by how much, how on earth, despite the rise in, in national insurance that's being voted on in the House of Commons in a couple of hours' time, how on earth do we even begin to cut into that waiting list? Well, well I mean, there's two answers to that. One, there's this whole palaver about national insurance and everything. It's, it's more sophistry than anything. I mean, uh, just to give you an idea, I mean, if you want to do about a million and a half out, uh, um, elective operations, you need two billion quid, OK? Yeah. So uh, at the moment, we know there's five and a half million there's probably seven, and it could be much higher than that. So, you know, people can do the maths themselves. You can see the amount of money that's going to need. It, it doesn't need it all in one go. It'll come through over time. So, you know, we can kind of fix yeah. it. But here's the issue. I mean, if we have a bad, if, if we have a surging COVID, which requires hospitalizations. Now, the, the length of stay is shorter now. Uh, length of stay in ITU with COVID was 12 days. Now then, most of them aren't ITU. They're younger people. They're very sick, but they get better quicker. Get better quicker, and the they all need oxygen, so they wear a different system. They're not intubated, and it's not such a yeah. palaver to look after them. So we can kind of get them through. If there's an exacerbation, as we call it, through flu, and you know nobody really <laughs> that's the elephant in the room. You know, the elephant with the Kleenex tissue in the room has got the flu. We don't want to talk about the elephant in the room. Yeah. But if we have a bad flu season, then, uh, you know, flu looks very much like COVID. You know, there's going to be a whole load of confusion about that until you get people in the hospital and blood test them. Uh, if we have a bad time, if we have a bad winter, then it will be chock-a-block. And if it's chock-a-block, OK, here's what happens. Effectively, we've got three hospitals. We've got emergencies, we've got 
elective procedures, we've got medical procedures. Now, if you get COVID, you go into a medical bed. If loads of people get the flu and COVID, we, we fill up the medical beds, can't get them out because social services is skin. It's got no money to take people home. So then you're left with the only bed you've got, really, are mm. elective beds. That's where you go in and get a new knee or a new hip. So we start saying to people, sorry, you can't come in. We've got to pinch that bed. Yeah. So that's how it all fills up. Yeah. The problem well, with it is, Nigel, it kind of it does it sort of creeps up on you, and then suddenly you've got you realise you've cancelled everybody's operations, and and that's the problem. It happens very quickly. And I thought Patrick Valance this afternoon was quite sensible when he said, you know, you've got to act early and you've got to act quickly, uh, and you've got to try and see this coming. So, you know, what's going to happen? Who knows? You know, you get no. Mystic Meg and ask her. No, who knows? But it's. But <laughs> Even... I do think that the approach is, is sensible to have a plan B. Yeah, no, no, I understand they have to have some sort of plan B as a government. Um, but I have to say, Roy, we'll be talking again about the National Health Service because it's going to be a very, very long winter, I'm sure. And thank you. Fingers crossed. For well, we'll cross our fingers. We might need to cross everything, I think. In a moment. Well, the boss of a civil service seems to think civil servants can stay working at home forever. Really? So Prime Minister Johnson today lays out the government's plans for Plan B, a series of measures including vaccine passports, mandatory face mask wearing, possible lockdown if things get too bad. And this will all happen if the hospitals are overwhelmed. From what Roy Liddy just told us, they're pretty much full as it is at the moment. Yet despite all of this, I have to say, uh, maybe government has to, maybe government needs to prepare for the worst. But for me, the thought after 18 months of all of this, of vaccine passports to go out for dinner or whatever it may be, that would be unacceptable. The French-style vaccine passport would be unacceptable. As ever, we welcome your views, gbviews at gbnews.uk. And Trevor says to us, vaccine passports are not about making it safe for people to go into venues. They are purely a divisive mechanism to keep people out. Well... It would keep quite a few people out, I think, if we got to that point. Andrew says to me, I have lost faith in the PM and his party and all those so-called health experts we pay for. Shades of the Michael Gove comment in the referendum. Too many experts. Elizabeth sends this comment in to me. As a business owner, I can assure you that I will not be complying and demanding presentation of vaccine passports from my customers. I'm prepared to go to jail for this. It's an obscene invasion of our liberty and a step too far. And I agree with you. Um, and Boris Johnson was saying today, well, you know, he's going to be very cautious about bringing these measures in. But, hey, uh, every time over the course of the last 18 months they've had the opportunity for Big Brother government to intervene, it has. Neil says to me, surely the best option to cut the mammoth waiting lists is to ask Germany, France, Holland to sell us their spare capacity then ask why we can't learn more from them. Well, look, I've been saying this now for a couple of months here uh, on GB News, that, of course, we have huge respect for the men and women that work within the National Health Service and are doing their damnedest, but the system doesn't appear to be working very well. The system seems to swallow up money as if it's some kind of black hole. And if you look at bang for the buck in our European neighbours, they are getting better 
health, health outcomes for the same amount of capital investment. Yes, there are lessons that we can learn, but that takes time. I still insist and believe that the private sector and a rapid growth of the private sector is the only way we're going to cut these waiting lists. Let's see. Now, my What the Farage moments of the day. A surreal war of words has broken out between US rapper Nicki Minaj and our Prime Minister Boris Johnson. It comes after Nicki tweeted in her 22, to her 22 million Twitter followers a myth about certain side effects associated with the vaccine last night. In today's press conference, Boris Johnson responded. Uh, just on that, Steve, I, I'm not familiar with the works of, uh, or not as familiar with the works of, of Nicki Minaj as I probably should be, but I am familiar with, with uh, Nicki Kanani, a superstar GP of Bexley, who's appeared many times on, uh, before you, uh, who, who, will who will tell you that vaccines are wonderful and everybody sh uh, should get them. Uh, so I prefer to listen to, to Nicki Kanani. And, uh, on uh, well, shortly after this, Nicki Minaj posted this to her 22 million Twitter followers. Yes, hello, Prime Minister Boris. It's Nicki Minaj. Um, I was just uh, calling to tell you that I thought you were so amazing on the news this morning. And I'm actually British. Well, Prime Minister, a word of advice. Your government took on Marcus Rashford last year and came out of it badly. Don't take on celebrities with vast Twitter followings. There simply is no point. And yes, it was the Met Gala dinner last night, possibly one of the most elitist events in New York, with tickets fetching $35,000. And who should make an appearance on the red carpet. Well, the most famous champagne socialist in the United States, if not the world, Alexandra Ocasio-Cortez. And here she is, wearing a dress with the slogan, Tax the Rich. That's it. Tax the Rich at an event that people have paid 35 or up to $35,000 to go to. And no hint of irony whatsoever from AOC. Well, there we are. I've no doubt the New York Times and CNN will think what she's done is absolutely wonderful. Now, a slightly more serious story, and one that really does make me pretty angry. A civil service boss, indeed the civil service boss, has suggested some government offices in Whitehall could shut because of a permanent shift to more working from home. Here he is, the Chief Operating Officer for the Civil Service and Permanent Secretary for the Cabinet Office, Alex Chisholm, speaking yesterday. Overall, um, at civil service level, we have found that we can move to uh, a greater number of people working more flexibly, both um, in some cases from home, in many cases across offices across the whole of the UK, which is a huge positive. Um, and again, those of you who have been on this committee for many years will know how many times civil servants have felt it's difficult and expensive to have to kind of bring in everybody down to a meeting in London face to face that is not necessary now to any like the same extent um, as well as that expensive uh, London real estate. So. so there you are, public sector jobs, none of them ever under threat, nobody ever gets sacked, pensions are guaranteed and just take it easy guys and work from home, it's cool, we can do it all on Zoom, it's no problem. Well, I don't believe any of that I think that for young people working in any office environment, 
They need physically to be there to learn from others. I think productivity working from home is much lower in most cases. Yeah, I get it. If you're a computer programmer, maybe you can do more from home than you can in the office. But for most people, you know, the doorbell rings, it's the latest Amazon delivery, the kids are screaming, the dog's been sick on the carpet, or whatever it is, there are just so many distractions. And I also think that people meeting physically together around a table, in a room, I think that's where you get a cross-germination of ideas and good things happen. So I think uh, that the top man here is talking nonsense. Well, joining me now is Zena Everett, executive coach and author of The Crazy Busy. And, 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 and Zena, working from home has suited some people, hasn't it? I think we've gone feral. Feral? Um I think we've gone slightly feral, but we've proved that we can work from home really effectively. And it's not true what you said about us less productive, quite the opposite. I think really? people have proved, I think I think people have proved that we can be very productive working from home. Um, and I think we've also rediscovered many of us a bit of work-life balance. However, we do need to come back to the office from the point of work that the point of view that you said. Because offices aren't just buildings, they're where we work together with, with a sense of purpose. And I think that we have to get a balance. Some kind of flexible, or let's call it dynamic working, is here to stay, where we do some work in person when we're together, and when we do our deep work on our own without interruption. However, we have to be a lot more flexible in the way we think about this, because we can't just say to people, you know, it's Tuesday, so we need you back in the office because we want you in three days a week. Because people aren't going to stomach that. We know. Really? Really? Well, 18 months then... ago, 18 months ago, Zena, they were coming to the office, let's say Whitehall in London, where very large numbers of civil servants work in those big departments. And 18 months ago, they came to work five days a week. I don't think there were too many objections to that. Are you now saying? after 18 months of sitting at home and, and sitting in the garden when the sun's shining, you're saying they wouldn't accept going back to work full-time? Um, I think you might have a slightly historical view of what work is like. Oh, um, really? Well, I, I, I saw the trains 18 months ago full of people in the underground on which you could barely move. Well, you see, I think you've nailed it on that point because what's putting most of us off going back into the office is the idea of a commute. Yeah. I think if we could just close our eyes and magic ourselves back into a building in a seat with our colleagues where we're talking to each other, we're collaborating, we're becoming creative, we're getting new ideas. And you're right, we've got to innovate our way out of this and become productive again. Yeah. That would be great. The problem is the big time suck that puts people off is the idea of commuting. So I think that employers have to be super flexible about this and really stagger start times because there is no point in me schlepping into central London, say I've got an hour and a half commute or something like that. I get into the office, I have to queue to get in the lift or else I say to my boss, do you know what, I've got to write this report. So I'm going to do that. I'll start at seven o'clock, I'll commute in at nine. And then I arrive in the office and there's no parking places. So that's the issue. I think workers need to really feel that they can trust their bosses not to waste their time and they can make it worthwhile to tolerate that commute to come in and do good work. So rather than just thinking about it in a sort of an old fashioned binary way, you're either at home 
or you're in the office. So we, we want to see you. We want to see you working. We now know that people are super effective at home because we've got ways well, of measuring out. Well, we don't know. No, we don't know that. And on productivity, there are two there are two very distinct schools of thought. There's yours and there's mine, and there's no proof either way uh, whether people have been more productive at home. I I'm very sceptical. I'm very scared. But 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 what about this point I was making about young people? This flexible working is actually, in many, many ways, if, if people are at home two or three days a week, actually very unfair on young, ambitious people who want to learn. Because I, my experience of things is that you learn by physically being with and watching other people doing things. It's surely not the same on Zoom, is it? Well, I think there's. I, I think you've got a good point there. I think people want to be. We're human. We're humans, aren't we? We we thrive on the heartbeat of social connection. Yeah. All of us need to spend some time together, and we all need to learn. So, I mean, I agree with you to a certain extent. I just think we need some kind of dynamic working with this combination of both. So we're working together. But do you know? Do you know how many emails are sent every single day around the world? Well, too many, but I don't know the number. Okay, 300 billion. Wow. So, the, so the worry is that when we're, we all come into the office and we spend our day responding to emails that somebody sitting over there has just sent us. Or, and I think this yeah. is Alex Chisholm's point, there is no point coming into a boring old meeting. Why come into an office for a boring old meeting when actually somebody could have recorded that as a voice note and sent it around for us to listen in our own time? So the question has to be, what tasks do we need to do and when and where do we need to do it in order to get our work done as effectively, as quickly and effectively as possible, rather than a kind of a mismatch hybrid way of working that's not really thought through. So we don't need to bring people back into the office for the sake of it. We need to bring that youngster back in for one day where they are spending the time really going around, talking to people in different teams, I don't getting that. new and getting new points of view. No, the idea of it is bring you back into a building so we can see you. I mean, we don't need work is no longer, we don't need surveillance mechanisms. We can see the output people come up with. And you know that, you know, there is a war for talent now for all sorts of reasons. And I don't think people want to be treated like that. We know for workers to be motivated, they have to have a high level of autonomy about what tasks they do and when and where they do it. They need to be able to think this through with their team they don't need to be told some sort of arbitrary measure, like we need to see you here at nine o'clock. Why? Why, if I need to write something, I need to think without interruption? I'm much better doing that at home or in a coffee shop or whatever it is. But people are measured well, on what they do, not where they are. You may be right, Zena. You may be right. Maybe the world's changed completely in the last 18 months and maybe employees won't put up with commuting and everything else. And you're right, of course. People can be non-productive yeah. in offices. Of course they can be non-productive in offices. And, yeah. and, and I agree with you, the culture of emailing someone sitting, you know, six feet away is ridiculous. But clearly, clearly, the head of the civil service takes a very similar view to you. I take a rather different view. But thank you for coming on and joining this debate here with us on GB News. In a moment, I'll be talking pints with Stuart Jackson, former Member of Parliament, and a key witness to what some think was Theresa May's Brexit betrayal in 2018.
Joining me tonight on Talking Pines is Stuart Jackson, former Conservative Member of Parliament and very much David Davis's right-hand man when he was Brexit Secretary, when there was the most enormous bust-up that took place at Chequers. And we'll get in to all of that. Stuart, welcome to Talking Pines. Very good to see you here. Good evening, Nigel. I'm struck by something. Hundreds of thousands of people in this country want to become MPs. It's, it's a big ambition. Some people hold it from when they're very young. Others decide in later life they want to get involved. Uh, whether the motives of everybody are the correct ones is another debate. But lots and lots of people want to be an MP. You became an MP in 2005. You were in the House of Commons for 12 years. Had you always wanted to be one? Pretty much from when I was a teenager. Right. I was always interested in politics, loved to debate and discuss politics, was always very interested in British history, world history, travel. And it seemed to me that it was the, the way I wanted to go in my career. Obviously, I did have a proper job. Did you? Uh, before. Well, that's I unusual. Jobs, that's actually. unusual. What did you do? I was in banking for a while, yep. straight from university, and then I became uh, HR manager. And then I was elected to Parliament. So I, I didn't take that normal uh, Oxford special advisor and Which so many have done. Well. Yeah. yeah. Which, which are, so many have Which done. is a bit of a caricature, but certainly is the case that some of our most successful uh, politicians did take that route. Yeah, too many in my view. And, and, you know, climbing mountains is very exciting. And you went through all the procedures and the selection processes and boom, 2005, you're a Member of Parliament. Once you got to the top, what was it like? Well, it's fantastic. The day that you take your seat on the green benches, the day that you're given the envelope by the returning officer uh, to present to the policeman at the gate, at St Stephen's Gate, and uh, you, you present your credentials is, is wonderful. And I remember on the, the, the day of my election, or certainly the week, I went into the House of Commons Library and I wrote a thank you note to my parents for the encouragement and support they'd given me yeah. uh, through the years. Uh, and it is quite an emotional moment. And I would say to people, it's a great honour and privilege to be a Member of Parliament, but it's also a mark of great resilience. You have to be able to take the knockbacks and the personal slights. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I did 32 interviews in 25 seats before I got my constituency wow. in Peterborough. Yeah. And I fought it first, lost it, came back and won and was elected three times. It's certainly about determination, self-confidence and resilience. So you were there, you got the seat. Michael Howard was the leader when you won. But by 2010, uh, we had a Prime Minister with a slightly different interpretation of conservatism to Stuart Jackson. And it seems to me, Stuart, you spent more years in Parliament fighting your own side than you did the other side. Well, I certainly... <laughs> because you were an early Brexiteer, weren't you? Yeah, I was. And, and in fact, t uh, ten years ago next month was the uh, epoch-making vote... Uh, which was a backbench vote. It was yeah. a debate which was meaningless in, in legislative terms uh, for us to have a referendum. I remember it uh, well. All out ref uh, in out referendum, and 81 Conservatives uh, campaigned for that. And yeah. my whip said, if you support this, you have to leave being a, a, a parliamentary private secretary. And I thought that it was better to stick by my principles. Mm. And ultimately, ten years on, I was right, and the party followed me, yeah. and the country voted... No, the 81 of you said what you said, and Cameron ignored it, and then you kept suddenly, in the polls, started going to the races, and, and the pressure came on, and then he relented. So, no, I mean, that obviously mattered to you a lot. But before we get on to 
Brexit, which, which from what I can see has been pretty much the biggest motivation in your political career, uh, like mine, just in different parties. Um, 2017 comes along, Theresa May calls the election, underperforms quite dramatically, and I guess you're one of the casualties. How does it... You know, you've been there for 12 years. Many would have expected you to be there for another 12 years after that. Yeah. Or longer. And you've lost. How did it feel losing? Well, it's a kick in the guts. You know, you arrive at uh, midnight as a local personality, a local VIP, and then you leave in some obscure fire exit as a has-been. <laughs> and everyone's interviewing your successor. And, and politics is, above all, it's a wonderful calling. It's a, it's a great... Uh, way to pursue your life if you want to make change in this country, but it is brutal. It's first mm. and foremost uh, a very social Darwinist, brutal falling. Uh, it's, it's, it's a rough. It's you a of all people game. know how. Yeah. Oh, I know how horrible it and can so, be. And yeah. so uh, we, we were blindsided. I, I thought I would be comfortably re-elected, but the minute the party came out with that crazy social care policy, um, and there was no consultation, and there was. I think the British people felt in their bones that, the, that Theresa May was taking them for granted, mm. fancied having a big majority, uh, went back on what she'd previously said in not having an early mm. election, and I think we were punished. People then didn't know how bad well, we'll, Jeremy Corbyn was. We'll come back to uh, Theresa May in a moment, I think, in this conversation. Peterborough was renowned, has been renowned, for postal vote fraud. People Sadly, got, yes. People have gone to prison. Yeah. Um, it's happened in the centre of Peterborough. It's happened in one particular community. Yeah. Labour have been the beneficiaries. Yeah. Uh, the guy that went to prison for organising it all was back in the by-election in 2019. Yeah. Organising Labour activity. I got involved in a legal action there after that by-election in 19. Um, did you feel, and this is quite relevant, because this is what Donald Trump's saying at the moment, did you feel robbed by postal votes? Well, I wouldn't put myself in the same category as, as Donald Trump. Similar complaint, though, well, if, you, yeah, if that's what you're making. I would, I would say if Donald Trump had slightly changed his tone a few weeks before the election, he probably would have won in Michigan and Virginia and these places and would be the president. I mean, there is a specific issue in Peterborough. In Way back six years ago, in 2015, after I was elected... I did actually have a debate in Parliament saying we've got to deal with what you call community postal voting. Yeah. And to a certain extent, to give them their due, this government has taken action, but it's nowhere near enough. And I think that if what was happening to people called Barbara uh, and Jilly in Guildford was happening to them, what is, what is now happening to people called Begum and Mrs Mohammed in central Peterborough, which is community voting... Being abused, women and they're in, and they're in, and they're intimidated. Young aren't they? women intimidated yes. into giving up yes. their votes yes. through community postal voting, which is yes. completely wrong. Then I think there would be an outcry. But wow. you know, it's a it's an issue that the government has to take note of. The French have got this right. The French, you know, if you're if you're disabled or you're 97 in a wheelchair or whatever it is, you can apply for a postal vote. You have to have a reason, and about three percent of the French turnout is voting by post. And now. In some of our inner cities, it's the, it's, it's the majority of votes cast in certain constituencies. Well, people forget that uh, modern postal votes on demand has really only existed about 10 or 12 years. It was, it was the Blair government. It was the Blair government. Yep. In fact, the 2001 yep. election, yep. the 97, yep. the 92 yep. elections were all on the old regime yep. where you had to have a really good reason yep. to vote by post. Yep. You were working away, you were sick. 
this community postal voting is open. Yeah. It's... And also, you get the postal vote three weeks before the election. You yeah. have, you've not even had the debate proper. I, I, Stuart, I, I feel very strongly on that too. We and, need to do more to, uh, to that, that. That needs to be reformed. It's not fair to any community <coughs> if votes have no. been stolen and there is corruption. But oddly, losing your seat, and you've been PPS before and you've done jobs like that, you know, junior, or the most junior jobs on the rung. But losing that seat actually put you in a very much more interesting position, didn't it? You joined up with David Davis, who was, who was the Brexit secretary. Didn't feel like that on June the 9th. No, but then, but no, but then, you know, one door closes, another, yeah. another door opens, and it, and it did for you. Yeah. And you were in a really very, very important position. You know, you're there with David Davis, you're the chief of staff to the man who's been given the job of negotiating a deal on Brexit. And Chequers comes along. Mm. Chequers comes along. So David Davis goes to Chequers. Where were you? Well, I wasn't at Chequers. I was sort of watching from the sidelines because, I, although I was his chief of staff, yeah. he took his policy special advisor, uh, who's now in the private sector. Um, but we knew on the Tuesday before the Saturday or before the Friday that he was not going to tolerate this capitulation that was being proposed principally by Philip Hammond, by David Liddington, by um, Theresa May and others. Um, and, Ollie, which, and Ollie Robbins? And, uh, well, Ollie Robbins was in a slightly different position then, but, I mean, he, he had started out as being the head, sort of head honcho in the Brexit department. He then was in a different position in the Cabinet Office. But essentially, both Boris Johnson and David Davis had been squeezed out, kept in the dark, and this was presented to them, this sort of pseudo-Brexit, uh, as a fait accompli. And Davis knew right from then. I mean, he blocked this way back in February and said, this is not Brexit and I'm not going to put up with it. Yeah. And they went round him. So by, we, by the time we got to July, uh, Brexit was bounced on him. So David Davis, principal man? Yeah, he was principal because he wasn't uh, lobbying, he wasn't undermining the Prime Minister. But when he saw the degree of subterfuge and, frankly, betrayal by the uh, May administration of, of Brexit, I mean, we would effectively be locked into the legal the European Union legal regime ad infinitum, and he could not countenance that. And to be honest, the reason Boris is Prime Minister is because of David Davis to a certain extent, because uh, David Davis's resignation gave Boris yeah. the space and the, and, and the political <coughs> capital to resign. Yeah, Boris wouldn't have resigned on his own, I don't think. But... I think it will be unlikely, but, yeah. but um, it turned out for the best. Obviously, Boris kept his powder dry uh, and he built a campaign and obviously it was successful and by the summer of 2019. And those of us that were on the Brexit side or those that believe in democracy were horrified by the antics of the John Burkos and the Remainers, the Ramonas, but just... Give us your view. Where does Theresa May fit into this whole story? How do you assess her premiership and, in particular, that Brexit deal that she put? I believe she's very similar to a sort of... She's analogous to Gordon Brown. He was never really tested. He came into office in the middle of a parliament. He wasn't really tested in a proper leadership contest. And it was the same with her. People did truly believe that she was respectful of the mandate to deliver a proper, authentic Brexit, i.e. a country which was a parliamentary, sovereign democracy and independent from the fiat of the European Union. And it was clear that because of the pressure from big business, from the Treasury and others, 
that she had reneged on that effectively by the beginning of 2018 and was trying to keep us effectively in the customs union and to a certain extent... So it was betrayal? I think it was a betrayal because um, it, it, it didn't seem that by the end of 2018 she was really in the business of delivering an authentic mm. Brexit and she she reaped what she, what she sowed, really, because at the end of the day she suffered the biggest, most catastrophic parliamentary vote defeat in British history. And three months later, she was gone. Yes. Uh, I enjoyed that. I enjoyed the European elections I, very I, much indeed. Yeah, I and, yeah. you, well, actually, I think I might say she'd uh, indicated she was going before the European elections. No. Or thereabouts. No, no. Before, no, she, no, she resigned. It was interesting. The vote took place and she resigned before the count was in, uh, which was the way that she did it. But, I, but, you but, know better than I. So, you believed in this as strongly as I believed in this. I did. And there's no question about that and still do. Uh, was, Boris's, was Boris's deal much better? And how do you see Brexit now? Boris's deal was better because we did legally leave the European Union. We brought back those sovereign powers. Have there been um, compromises which I would rather there not have been? Yes, the Northern Ireland Protocol is very difficult mm. to sell. To a, well. to a Brexiteer. Yeah. Uh, we've seen uh, the de facto colonisation of a part of the United Kingdom yeah, we have. Northern Ireland by the European Union for their own very cynical reasons. I always said, and I, I've written it in several places, that their strategic objective is always to cause as much difficulty for Brexit mm. for, for the UK and for us to not have a strategic advantage uh, economically over the European Union. And they'll continue to do that. And we're naive if we believe anything else. So oh, totally. it's better than what could have been, which under a... Be, let's be honest, if Corbyn had signed up to the May deal to have a second referendum vote, it would have been a catastrophe. It would have mm. split the Tory party and split the country. Oh, it would have done. So we're better than we could have been. Yeah, no, no, I think I take that view too. And finally, Stuart, you, 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 you're you quite pugilistic, aren't you? Um, you know, on Twitter, you you you, you don't, is that sort of back away from having a punch up? You, um, in error, I'm sure, once called somebody a thick chav, and you, you've you've had a few fisticuffs on Twitter. What's the next big fight in Stuart Jackson's life? Well, I'm less pugilistic than I used to be. <laughs> I think you now I'm I'm a reti I'm a retired um, recovering politician. <laughs> like you, I'm in business now, so I think you need to be a bit more. Uh, congenial in business and, and that's all to the good. I think I'll continue to be a Conservative. I think yep. that this country needs a Conservative government. I think a lot of criticism has attracted uh, has been uh, attracted to uh, the Prime Minister Boris Johnson. I think Brexit and Covid have been huge generational challenges and I don't think he's done too badly. So let's see what all happens right. in the next chapter. Thank you for joining us. That was Stuart Jackson, somebody who stood by his political principles. Good for him. OK, we are coming towards the end of the show and it is time for Barrage the Farage, where you send in your questions and I do not get a look at them before. So, let's give it a go once again. Clive asks me, what do you think of Nicola Sturgeon's handling of the Covid crisis? Well, I'll begin by saying what I think of Nicola Sturgeon. You know, I've met all sorts of political leaders of, of parties in this country, of global leaders. Personally, I found her one of the most prickly 
and one of the most difficult and one of the most unpleasant people I've ever come face to face with. Um, that's just my view. She probably thinks exactly the same about me. Um, on the COVID crisis, well, she's trying all the time, isn't she, to be just one step ahead of whatever Boris Johnson is doing and trying at all times uh, to centralise as much power uh, in government as you possibly can. And that's what the extreme left of politics have been doing for over a century, uh, and that's what she is. And, and be in no doubt, you know, the SNP is a hard left political party. If Scotland ever broke away from the United Kingdom, they would have financial disaster. Paul asks me, Nigel, who do you think will lead the Tory party into the next general election? Boris Johnson, if he can afford to. And I say if he can afford to because clearly he's struggling to live on a Prime Minister's salary and that may sound ridiculous to many of you living at home but there are lots of added costs that go with being a Prime Minister plus he's got children, ex-wives and all the rest of it. I still think it probably will be Boris Johnson but we'll see. Jean has emailed in to GB Views, you always come across so confidently. Do you ever at any times feel nervous? Oh yes, absolutely. Oh, I do, I do. The most nervous I ever felt in my life, I think, was when, was when I was in Mississippi attending a Trump rally in 2016, and with a few minutes to go, one of the guys said, oh, Donald would like you to appear on stage. What, me, here in Mississippi, 18,000 Mississippians, and Trump walks over, puts his hand on my shoulder and says, Gene Nigel, it's just so good of you to do this. So good, so good, and walks away. And I think that was a pretty nervous moment. <laughs> <laughs> Matt on Twitter says, do you have a favourite Minaj track? No, I don't. I'm, as, I'm afraid inconvenienced as the Prime Minister on this particular one.